Stanford's president will resign after a report found flaws in his research. Mark Tessier Levine was cleared of accusations of scientific fraud and misconduct, but the review said his work had, quote, multiple problems, end quote, and fell below customary standards of scientific rigor. This is a dramatic fall from the top of one of the world's most respected universities. It also raises wider questions about data manipulation in academic research. Well, doctors are sending abortion pills into states with bans. At least 3,500 doses have been shipped since mid-June. The effort could help facilitate at least 42,000 abortions in states where they're restricted over the next year. Telemedicine shield laws introduced in Democrat-led states over the past year protect abortion pills being sent into other states. In 2020, amid the disruptions of the pandemic and the social upheaval following the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, the U.S. saw the largest increase in its homicide rate in modern history. Now, more than three years after the start of the pandemic, the country is on track to record one of its largest, if not the largest, annual declines in homicides. Now, this is according to a report released today. Textbook sales are plunging in the face of new laws in conservative states. State education departments are locked in tense negotiations with educational publishers about the teaching of gender, history, race, and sex. Educational publishers face fines and even jail time if their materials break state laws. But the laws are often confusing and school officials are delaying book purchases. The Republican-led House and Senate in Alabama approved dueling congressional maps yesterday that would increase the percentage of Black voters in the state's second district, but not by enough. Democrats argue and to comply with a federal court order to create two districts in the state with at least close to a majority Black population. Now, some analysts have speculated that Republicans would rather have a court impose a plan drawing those two Black districts rather than create one themselves and have the creation of a second Black voting district on their voting record. Two federal judges handed legal losses to Donald Trump yesterday, one rejecting the former president's bid to move from state to federal court his upcoming trial on charges of falsifying business records, and the other denying a request for a retrial in a civil sexual assault case Trump lost in May. And a federal grand jury deciding whether to indict Donald Trump over his efforts to overturn the 2020 election is set to meet today and hear testimony from an aide who was with former President Donald Trump for much of the day on January 6, 2021. William Russell, a former White House aide who now works for Trump's presidential campaign, was scheduled to testify before the grand jury convened by special counsel Jack Smith. And in some good news in the sports world, NFL owners approved the sale of the commanders from Daniel Snyder cider who uh, sell to Josh Harris, who's a private equity investor, and Urban Magic Johnson, one of the investors in Harris's group, tweeted after the announcement, this is truly the biggest achievement in my biggest in my business career, and it's a historic moment for the entire black community. Talk about God's perfect timing. 
This was the right organization for me to be a part of, given its global appeal, history of winning, and the diverse fan base in the DMV. Those are the words and the tweet of Urgent Urban Magic Johnson, who now is a part owner of an NFL franchise. You are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending and breaking news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. In this hour, I am joined by two super smart and brilliant contributors. Uh, here for her debut appearance on Ariva Martin in real time is Amanda Edwards. She is an attorney and candidate for Texas's 18th Congressional District. And returning to the show, uh, Dr. Nick Cortele. Corte, he is a KBLA National Political Affairs Analyst, and he is the host of A More Perfect Union right here on KBLA on Sundays at 10 a.m. and again at 10 p.m. And as you know, in hour two, that's the hour where we go behind the headlines and we dig deep on the stories that have people talking. And today we're talking about uh, the recent statistics that are out about the rising Black maternal mortality rates. Uh, those rates have spiked in the last two decades, according to the CDC. And as many of you have heard, Black women are three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women. Now, we've covered this topic of the uh, the issues around the Black maternal mortality rate and how uh, really scary and dangerous it is for Black women to give birth in the U.S. But today we're looking at the health inequities around the uh, Black maternal mortality rate and other health inequities that plague the Black community. But we're asking, can reparations, can some of these policy recommendations uh, that we see presented in reparations programs, such as in the recommendations of the California Reparations Task Force and that in San Francisco and other places, can reparations be the answer? Uh, can it be the way in which we address some of these really significant health inequities that we see uh, in the Black community, whether we're talking about Black women giving birth or we're talking about Black folks uh, being disproportionately impacted by other chronic diseases such as hypertension or diabetes? I'm going to talk to some experts today about how reparations might be the pathway through which we uh, address some of these health inequities. Uh, but before I bring on my guest, here's what I'm thinking about in real time. Now, yesterday we talked about no labels. This purportedly centrist political group, uh, this group recently released a 72-page uh, uh, political manifesto entitled Common Sense. Now, this proposal states that most Americans are decent that they're caring, that they're reasonable and patriotic people. Uh, this manifesto declares uh, in its preamble that instead we see our two major parties dominated by angry and extremist voices driven by ideology and identity politics rather than what's best for our country. No label says it may back a third party candidate for president next year unless 
President Joe Biden seems to be running well ahead of Donald Trump, who they presume will be the nominee for the Republicans. Now, this sounds more like a threat, like unless Joe Biden is where we think he should be in the polls, we are going to run this third party candidate, presumably because they feel like this third party candidate would be the way to defeat Donald Trump. Now, the politician, this group, this no labels group has been promoting lately is West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. Now, we all know Joe Manchin is a centrist. Uh, he is on the record for, th you know, voting to kill things like the expansion of the child tax, uh, tax credit, uh, anti-poverty programs that we know have proven effectiveness. And he's on the record blocking initiatives for renewable fuels in favor of protecting coal and other fossil fuels. So you have to scratch your head and wonder how no labels uh, plans to defeat Donald Trump by putting forth what might be a candidate, Joe Manchin, as a third party candidate. Uh, I, I think the prospect of that tells you all you need to know about no labels. Uh, but there's more that you should know if you're even contemplating following them, supporting them financially. This organization doesn't disclose its donors. Uh, there's been some really good journalists reporting, though, that their donors do include private equity investors, a natural gas billionaire and real estate and insurance industry figures. Uh, the best window into No Label's approach is this so-called common sense policy document. Uh, the document says it's a clear blueprint for where America uh, should go and what Americans really want. But when you dig deeper and really go behind, you know, behind the, the sound bites, this document is a lot of things, but it is not a clear blueprint for anything. To the contrary, it's just uh, an, uh, a glog, you know, it's just a bunch of misinformation and a lot of platitudes. It points out a lot of problems in America, like the housing crisis and poverty, but it's really, really light on any specifics in terms of what to do to solve these big problems. Uh, you know, for example, it says building more homes in America will make housing more affordable for Americans. Really? Duh, no kidding. <laughs> so uh, again, this document is a lot of things, but it is not a blueprint for how we solve the problems in America. And obviously, if this political group is uh, going to uh, try to defeat Donald Trump and jump into the race uh, because they don't think Joe Biden may be where he should be based on whatever their timeline is, you know, they are really mistaken about the way we ensure that Donald Trump doesn't become president in 2024. And the reality is, if they want to support Joe Biden for president, if they want to make sure that Joe Biden beats Donald Trump or whatever candidate the Republicans might put forth, the best way to do that is to support Joe Biden. That's the clear blueprint. Democrats will win in 2024 when Joe Manchin, a Democrat, and others associated with no labels support the Democrat who will be on the ticket for president in 2024.
it's really that simple. And I hope the No Labels political party gets that message. A third party candidate running against Joe Biden is not the way to ensure that Joe Biden becomes the next president of the United States. When we come forward, more of today's breaking and trending news right here on KBLA Talk 1580. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. And today we are tracking the breaking news and trending news, and we are taking a look at the stories that have people talking. And in this hour, I'm joined by Amanda Edwards. She's an attorney and candidate for Texas 18th Congressional District. And Avi Bernard is going to join us in this segment. Uh, Avi is the host of the Friday edition of Ariva Martin in real time. And Avi, okay, I'm so excited you are here today because this big news in sports, and I know you are our sports expert. What? How significant is it that Magic Johnson is a part of this investment group that Josh Harris put together. They now have bought the Washington Commanders for like 6.5, I think it is, billion dollars, the most amount of money ever paid for a sports team. And Magic Johnson saying this isn't just about him and his family. This is a historic moment for the entire Black community. Help us understand what Magic is talking about in that tweet. Well, it is a huge moment for the entire Black community. We've been talking about having more Black ownership across all of the major sports, but especially the NFL in which so many of the players are Black and none of the owners have been Black. And now we finally have a Black owner. And Daniel Snyder is just not just a, a bad owner. He's just a bad person. He's had a lot of personal scandals. It's great. It's great to get him out of the league and out of professional sports, period. And Magic Johnson has just been groundbreaking ever since he stopped playing basketball He's a part owner of the Dodgers, as you know, and now he's with the with the commanders, which <clears throat> also just underwent uh, a historic name change. And uh, they were they were being known as the Washington football team because their previous <laughs> name was so abhorrent. And so now the commanders had a respectable name and respectable ownership. It's a great moment. So, Amanda, you're an attorney, and I know you have followed the lawsuits that have been filed against us, the NFL and some of the teams, especially around the issue of not having uh, black coaches or the way the black coaches have been treated. The league has had a big problem with women, and uh, this former owner of the commanders has just been fined like $60 million, and a part of that has to do with sexually harassing a uh, an employee that worked for the team. Uh, what do you make of, of having Magic Johnson uh, as an owner of the commanders? And what might that do in terms of uh, what we have seen in terms of lawsuits alleging discrimination towards black coaches in the league? I think that this is such a pivotal moment and critical for our community. It's important that we not just see uh, our community in spa in limited spaces, but instead see them in ownership arenas as well. I think this has been a tremendous uh, success for him and the in the group with whom he's worked to purchase the team. But I also think it, it speaks to the importance of promoting equity at all levels. Equity, not just in terms of being able to become a player, but also being able to purchase the team. And that's something that we've often often seen is that the doors to opportunity don't always remain open for everyone, depending on what door you're knocking on. And what this demonstrates is that 
we can knock hard on these doors and open them. And what I hope to see is that these doors remain open for others to follow. That's also the next feat is making sure that he's not the first and the last, but instead be continues a legacy where this becomes more commonplace and more normal. And speaking to that, uh, Avi, as a part owner in this investment group and Clearly, Josh Harris is the leader of this group and will be the face, I presume, in terms of the ownership group. So how much involvement will an equity partner like a Magic Johnson and their other partners in this deal, how much involvement will they have in the day to day operations to make decisions around like the coaching staff? And who gets recruited and, and who's in the management? Because also one of the things we often talk about with these professional sports teams is they may have a predominant number of African-Americans as players, but the front offices, the management is often not diverse. So will someone like Magic Johnson as a partner have say so over diversifying the ownership and the coaching staff? I mean, not the ownership, but the management and the coaching staff. Yeah, equity owners in sports teams have little to no involvement in the day-to-day operations, including who, which coaches are selected, which players are selected. But having someone like Magic Johnson as part of the face of the franchise, I'm sure that they will consult with him on certain decisions. And it's also just, just uh, amazing to have him be part of the team. And he isn't actually the first one. Lewis Hamilton, the Formula One race driver, became the first uh, minority uh, equity black owner late last year and so we now have two but um to answer your question no uh, magic won't be making any coaching decisions that's usually up to the general manager unless you have a owner who is a little bit overbearing like a jerry jones in dallas and he'll make the decisions himself uh not to not to trash amanda's uh state i'm not sure if she's a cowboys fan but i mean i'm a houstonian <laughs> just wanted to make sure just wanted to make sure and so uh but yeah no magic won't be making any decisions like that but i'm sure that they will consult with them no, you're right. I mean, just the symbolism, just having uh, an African-American and particularly someone of his stature uh, associated with the team is all good. And it is definitely thank you for letting, you know, sharing with us that he's not the first. He's joining uh, Mr. Hamilton. And as Amanda said, uh, when folks make groundbreaking news or when they become the first or the second, hopefully they are opening the door wide so that others can follow behind them. So this time next year or five years from now, you know, there's a, a cadre of African-American, Latino, Asian and other minorities who are involved in the ownership of these teams. Uh, let's talk about Alabama. Uh, Amanda, you're close. You're in the South. Uh, the Republicans in Alabama seem dead set on not complying with the court's order, the order uh, that required them to create a second black voting district, a second black congressional district. And I read uh, a piece that said these Republicans would rather purposely defy the court's order so that the court can appoint uh, someone, a, a third party to come in and draw the maps because they don't want it on their records that they created a second black voting district, even though they were mandated to do so by the courts. That just blew my mind that these Republicans are refusing to follow the court's order. Ariva, I think we've just gotten into a space of dangerous politics that people, no matter what the consequences, will stop at nothing to secure power and, of course, and, and creep other people out of power. And, and in this case, this is an egregious 
situation, which is very clear on its face in terms of it being uh, counter to what the courts have stated, um, the population of Alabama justifies the creation of this majority minority district. Uh, there's only one to date. And of course, there should obviously be more. Uh, this is a situation in which you've got people you know, just out in the open, willing and and very uh, just overtly working against what is just in this circumstance and having a lack of representation because of the district, the way that the district has been drawn is one way of many that of, of tools that have been used to oppress. And unfortunately, in 2023, we see that as an alive and kicking approach that is being done right in front of our very eyes each and every single day. Yeah, I was shocked, Avi, that these lawmakers, Republican lawmakers, they know the laws pretty clear. They know the court's order. It's pretty clear. So they're not saying we're confused by it. They're not even saying we necessarily disagree with it. They're just saying we don't want to be on record having given African-Americans in the state of Alabama uh, the constitutional rights that they have to have a congressional district and to uh, be able to exercise their constitutional rights to vote. That just seems, I mean, that's beyond the pale in so Reba, many ways. Uh, they're very clearly saying, listen, we don't want more black voters. That is not what we want. We're in Alabama. We should be able to have as many white voters as we want. Just let us have our white voters. That's what they're saying. And regardless of what the court's decision was, they are still going to try to find any way around having an equitable voting process as possible. And we're seeing this in not just the voting aspects, uh, we're seeing this in, in every aspect. I mean, they tried to overturn the election and we're seeing uh, the Trump likely going to be indicted again because him and the Republican Party uh, have been actively trying to subvert democracy uh, ever since he lost and it's just it's disgusting. And as black people, we have to be aware of this. And that's why I'm glad we're covering it on this show, because we have to be aware of all the things they're trying to do to keep us from voting around the country. Yeah, I'm glad you, you mentioned be aware of this. I was reading something about Tommy Tuberville, the uh, senator uh, from Alabama, who is holding up the promotion of key uh, military personnel over these culture wars about access to abortions and access to medications for individuals in the armed services who are trans. And a reporter went into his district and asked them what they thought, his constituents, his voters, what they thought about his conduct. And they were clueless. They said, we don't like, what, what are you talking about? Like, what is he doing? What is our senator doing? So oftentimes what's happening in state houses and in Congress and in Senate, uh, in the Senate in Washington, D.C., doesn't get effectively communicated to the constituents that are sending these lawmakers to these, uh, you know, houses of, of representation. So folks in Alabama don't know what their senator is doing. And we can imagine that many folks uh, in some of the states that we see folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene. You have to wonder, do her constituents know, uh, you know how obstructionist uh, she is being? Uh, and that's why it is so important that we cover these topics, that we cover them over and over and over again. Don't assume that everybody is reading the local newspapers. Don't assume everybody's tuned into uh, cable news. Don't assume that people are, you know, really tuned into what's happening in Washington and in their capitals. Uh, although we you know, would like for them to be, and it's important for them to be, uh, it's, it's incumbent upon us in the media to use this platform to just 
keep beating this drum and making sure people get uh, the information they need. Uh, when we come forward, we're going to talk about book sales are down at schools because schools teachers are afraid that they may go to jail if they purchase certain books. And this drop in crime uh, following the end of the pandemic. What does that all mean? And Stanford University, uh, maybe not one of the most respected universities in the country. Uh, stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and you are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time. My name is your host, Ariva Martin. And in this hour, we are tracking today's breaking and trending news. And Amanda Edwards, she's an attorney and candidate for Texas's 18th Congressional District, is here. And none other than Avi Bernard is joining us. You all check Avi out every Friday because he hosts the Friday edition of Ariva Martin in real time right here on KBLA. Talk 1580 from 4 to 6 p.m. PST. So make sure you are tuning in on Fridays to check out Avi. He's holding it down today, helping us break down some of this news. And uh, I don't know, uh, these uh, Florida is in the news seemingly every day. The governor of Florida, who is running for president, who won't attack Donald Trump for the various federal indictments and the lawsuits that are racking up against him. But he is taking time out of his schedule to be on this mission to do what he calls, you know, kill wokeism in the state of Florida. Uh, yesterday, his Department of Education literally voted to approve a curriculum about how the state and how teachers in the state could teach uh, black history, how they could teach about slavery. And one of the things, uh, Avi, that's so appalling about how Florida is now uh, trying to rewrite Black history. One of the, the things that the teachers have to teach is how slaves, uh, in the process of being a slave, learn skills that could benefit them. Now, I don't think we've ever thought about the unforced or the forced labor, unpaid forced labor, the brutality of slavery as teaching slaves a skill that they could use like use where i mean where is a slave going to use the skill of, of fear intimidation and you know just trying to survive what do you make of what desantis is is doing to the state of florida and is trying to do to the nation he is making it as anti-black as possible I mean, I'm surprised he didn't go full Kanye and say slavery was a choice. It's just, it's so maddening because they talk about, oh, critical race theory. You know, we don't want uh, white kids to feel ashamed of their ancestry, but they're going to go ahead and say that uh, black people benefited from slavery. Never mind the fact that we weren't even allowed to learn to read. We weren't allowed to learn the most basic skills. And if we did, then our, our lives were put at risk. We, we literally risked our lives just to learn how to read. And so they're, they're going to say that, that uh, they don't want white children to be ashamed of their past, but they don't have any regard to how little black kids might feel about this. And never mind the fact that it's completely false. They're going to try to spin uh, this in, in a way to look, to make them look as good as possible, make them look like they were doing us a favor by enslaving us. And they can't, they won't even let us teach the accurate history. It's, yeah. it's disgusting. It's like we were in job skills training or something. We were at the job core, man. I mean, if you read this, this is what the, this is what the Florida Department of Education under Ron DeSantis is trying to 
do rewrite the history of slavery in this country to make it look like slaves were somehow participating in a job training program. This is really dangerous. I mean, this is beyond criti criticizing critical race theory. And you and I both as lawyers know that it's critical race theory is not a theory that's taught outside of law school. But how do we combat this? You're, you are hopefully going to be sitting in Congress of, you know, within the next year or so. How do we on a national level and the local level prevent this very dangerous revisionism of our history? Yes, you've hit the nail on the head. This is dangerous. This has gone beyond just a matter of preference, personal opinion. This is an, an issue where if you don't know your history, you're in danger of repeating it. And right now, what we have done in our country is exploit many people. And we have to tell those stories, those good stories, those bad stories, and everything in between so that we know what history should be repeated and which history we should not repeat. And I think that's critically important, too, to understand manipulating the understanding of the future is a problem. Uh, when you are going about systematically trying to prevent this next generation of, of children from even being able to make informed choices and have an informed perspective because you've limited their ability to access the information. We have gotten to a space and place in our trajectory as a, in a, as a country that I think we have to turn away from this. We must turn away from this. We have gotten to a very toxic space in our politics where people believe that even if they have to rewrite history, that's okay as long as they win. And that's a dangerous practice that we have got to get out of because I think right now, so many of the things that we took for granted, me growing up, the peaceful transfer of power, that was never even a question that that would not be the case here in the United States because we are a democratic republic. Of course, we have a peaceful transfer of power. And of course, now we know with what happened on January 6th, that that is not guaranteed here in the United States. And so how far are we willing to allow the envelope to be pushed is the question. But I think it takes leadership, leadership on all levels. It's not just Washington. It's the state level. It's your local level. So much of what's happening is happening at the local levels. Right now, for example, in Houston, there's been a, a state takeover of our public largest public school system in Houston. And so that means there are no elected officials from the local level having input, having say. These are things that right now in our, our country's trajectory, we're playing different kinds of games. And I think the consequences of those games have yet to be seen and understood. And I don't want to have our next generation be the guinea pig or those that suffer the most as a result of the games that are played politically today. I'm glad you mentioned the importance of being involved or being focused not just on national politics, but on local politics, because what has happened, like you just described in Houston, Houston may be a liberal city, but Texas is a state where the legislature is controlled by Republicans. So when the Republican legislature, the state of Texas, takes over the school district in Houston, that means those Republican legislators, uh, legislators are making decisions about the curriculum and what happens as it relates to that Houston school district. And so uh, some would say that Democrats were asleep at the switch and 
we were not focused enough on these state legislatures. And now we have these super majorities in states like Texas, like Florida. And what Republicans can't get accomplished at the national level, although they're they're doing pretty well at the Supreme Court level. But what they can't get accomplished when they don't control the House, they don't control the Senate or the White House, they are getting done at the state level. So we have states like Florida that, I mean, they from anti-gay legislation, anti-black legislation, uh, anti-woman legislation. I mean, they are at these states, Texas and Florida and Alabama, uh, just effectuating the far right extremist agenda of Republicans. And it's like, how do you live in a state like Texas? I have friends who are like, you know, live in Florida and I, I can't even comprehend how you do that. I understand, you know, cities like Houston and Dallas are, are progressive, but uh, we're going to talk about, you know, the implications of these state legislatures and tours are making these policy decisions that are impacting uh, democratic cities like Houston and Dallas uh, when we come forward. And also we'll talk about these textbooks because this, this curriculum a control that we see happening at the state level is really playing itself out in an ugly way as it relates to schools and could mean that schools will open in September and there won't even be books in the classroom because of culture wars. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. So Avi, these culture wars that are being played out you know, in the capitals in states like Florida and Texas, these aren't just you know theoretical fights. These Uh, Fights over textbooks and curriculum have a real world impact on everyday people. Uh, Now there's reporting out that textbook sales are plunging uh, in the face of these new laws in conservative states because uh, teachers and administrators at schools are afraid to buy books and publishers are afraid to print books or to sell books to schools. Uh, out of fear that they may include uh, one of these forbidden topics around gender, history, race, or sex. And some of these states actually have fines for publishers who, uh, you know, create and sell these materials to their school districts. Also, some even provide jail time in their laws. The school officials are saying, look, this is confusing. So maybe we just won't buy any books. So, I mean, what does that mean for school kids going back to school in a month or so, uh, the prospect that they may not even have textbooks? Well, a lot of kids in our communities don't have textbooks as it is, which is a a whole different conversation. But in in regards to Republicans controlling what we read and what we teach, I thought they were the party of small government. But when it comes to the matters of policing what black and brown people learn. They're the biggest government that that they could possibly imagine. They want to expand as much as they can. And it's really sad because in in regular textbooks that that we receive at high school level, they don't even get that deep into black history. They just kind of teach the very basic, you know, I took an AP history course in which we read a book called Howard Zinn, uh, People's History of the United States. And and there you can really learn some some really some things that you're not going to learn in most textbooks. But they don't even want us to have a basic knowledge of black history. And it's because they don't want us having discussions like this. They don't want us to know what really happened because they don't want us to fight back. And that's why Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is always talking about how woke is such a bad thing. Woke means to be enlightened. They don't want us to be enlightened. They want us to stay asleep. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, he spends 
somebody has counted how many times he says he's fighting against wokeism or woke uh, when he gives a speech. He thinks it's a, I guess, a buzzword or trigger word or something for his base. And if he can say it, every other word and every sentence, every speech that he gives, it somehow demonstrates that he is the guy that should be, uh, you know, in this case, elected to be the president. But I do worry, Amanda, about this effort because it, it is serious and it is serious and it is scary because there are again cities like Houston and Dallas in these Republican run states where you have Democratic mayors. So how are they like in your city of Houston or in the city of Dallas? How do how does the local legislative body, how does the local political body fight back against you know, what may be a a GOP majority in your state house? You know, I hate to break it to you. It's even worse than what we've described. Now in the state of Texas, they are passing preemption laws that then hamstring the ability of these democratic cities like Houston to govern themselves, to pass policies about fair wages, things of that nature. They're now saying you can't, it used to be a theory of local control, right? Until the local control became democratic. And now it's anything but local control. It's so much so that we have gotten to a place that is so counterproductive. And I'll just use a few examples that are real life examples. And I say this all the time to people. I've never met a single Republican or Democrat that likes a pothole. I've never met a single Republican or Democrat that likes to flood. But some kind of way, our state legislature has still politicized our local government. And how do we do that? I mean, they've denied access to flood mitigation dollars for the city of Houston that experienced the second worst disaster in American history, $125 billion in damage. And the state said we were eligible for a zero, a zero dollar allocation. And there were Republicans that flooded in Harvey. There were Democrats that flooded in Harvey. We are playing a game with people's lives. So why is is the state, let me ask you this, why did the state of Texas say that Houston wouldn't get any money for the significant damage that you sustained during the flood? Yes, they blamed it on the formulas. And so they blamed it on the formulas. This was actually uh, the general land office decision. And it has since been ruled or declared by HUD to have been an unfair practice. But notwithstanding, you've got people's lives that are lying in the balance of these decisions. And that's what we try as local leaders to impart is that this is not a political game. These are real people's lives. They deserve to be protected and served by those that lead in both the local level, but also those that lead on the state level. And right now, what's happening at our state level, it's just securing more politics, uh, more political gain, as opposed to actually serving people. We have too many people who are in offices where they're supposed to take a public oath to serve people, and instead they're serving their own political interests. And we have got to start sending servant leaders into these state house seats, these state senate seats, so that they can actually produce results that are beneficial for the residents that they serve, as opposed to, at this point, very counterproductive and and actually undermines the health and well-being of our community. Look at so many of the matters that have passed out of Texas. Look what's happened with abortion. I can just go down the list 
of very dangerous policies that deal with access to health care, that deal with access to security, just very basic rights and that people should have access to, but yet and still we've politicized them. So at this stage in the game, what I encourage everybody to do, if you have not registered to vote, you need to register to vote. And next, if you have not gotten your friends, family, and the new neighbor down the street to register to vote, get them to do the same. What was done in Georgia has to be replicated. And that is, they didn't win every time they started pushing uh, voter registration, but what they did, they stayed consistent and they continued to find new voters coming on the rolls and they kept our new new Georgians coming into town that they could get registered to vote. And other states like Texas have to stay consistent in their efforts to do the same. That's a good point. Uh, I mean, I've had a conversation with Val Demings from Florida. You know, she ran unsuccessfully to be uh, to try to beat Mark uh, Marco Rubio for that Senate seat in Florida. And she reminded me that Florida wasn't always a conservative state. Florida was a purple state. Florida was a state where Democrats could win. Uh, and when DeSantis ran for the first time for governor in Florida, uh, you know, he didn't have an overwhelming majority in terms of, of his win. Uh, I think the, the Democrat in that race kind of you know had ran into some issues, had some scandal, and and so uh, he was able to secure that seat. So it always begs the question for me: is how are these Republicans being elected? When you go down the list of all the things they're doing to deny people their rights, how come they keep getting? Elected? How come they have the supermajority in states? How come DeSantis has been able to uh, enact the policies that he has? How come the the Florida, you know, state house has become majority Republican? Do you think you know voters don't care about these issues? They're again out of touch with these issues. What do you think is happening on the ground in some of these states? I think it's a combination of a lot of things, and I love what the soon-to-be Congress Congresswoman from Texas just said about duplicating what. Stacey Abrams did in Georgia and just expanding the grassroots movement consistently and reaching every possible voter because it is a problem of voter engagement. It's a problem of misinformation. It's a problem of gerrymandering. And they do everything possible to keep the power for themselves. And it's just it's something that we do have to just constantly fight. It sucks because we, we want to just, OK, I want to come show up, vote every two years, every four years. But we have to vote every chance we get, because regardless of whether you're into politics, politics are into you and they will take over your life and take over your rights if you don't stay engaged. And that's what we're seeing ac- across all these Republican states in, in which now most of the South, you can't even ha- you can't even get an abortion. And I don't know, there's stretches of states in which you have to go several states away to get an abortion. People can't do that. That's it's dangerous as as uh, Amanda said earlier, and we have to stay engaged at every possible chance we get. Well, we see when you have Democrats controlling states, this abortion pill being able to be shipped uh, out of state is because Democratic-led states are providing laws that protect the doctors who are sending those pills. We see states like Michigan, a Democratic-led state with Governor Whitmer and a majority uh, Democratic legislature taking action on things like gun control, uh, things like making access to abortions uh, available in the state of Michigan. So things happen differently when you have Democrats running states. And that's why it's so important that 
Uh, we are engaged at every level of our electoral politics, not just when the president is being voted on, but when those state legislatures uh, are being flipped and when those seats come up, you have to be engaged at that level. We are out of time. Thank you so much, Amanda, uh, for joining us. Good luck in your race to become a congresswoman from the 18th Congressional District of Texas. Uh, all the best to you and Avi Bernard. Make sure you check him out every Friday right here on KBLA Talk 1580. He is the host of the Friday edition of Ariva Martin in Real Time at 4 p.m. PST. Uh, so make sure you are staying tuned in uh, right here on KBLA. And when we come forward, we're going to talk about using reparations as a way to address health inequities in the Black communities right here on KBLA Talk 15. Stanford president will, the Stanford president will resign after a report found flaws in his research. Mark Tessier Levine was cleared of accusations of scientific fraud and misconduct, but the review said his work had multiple problems and fell below customary standards of scientific rigor. Now, this is a dramatic fall from the top of one of the world's most respected universities. It also raises wider questions about data manipulation and academic research. Doctors are sending abortion pills into states with bans. At least 3,500 doses have been shipped since mid-June. The effort could help facilitate at least 42,000 abortions in states where they're restricted over the next year. Telemedicine shield laws introduced in Democratic-led states over the past year protect doctors who are shipping abortion pills. In 2020, amid the disruptions of the pandemic and the social upheaval following the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, the United States saw the largest increase in its homicide rate in modern history. Now, more than three years after the start of the pandemic, the country is on track to record one of its largest, if not the largest, annual declines in homicides. Textbook sales are plunging in the face of new laws in conservative states. State education departments are locked in tense negotiations with educational publishers about the teaching of gender, history, race, and sex. Educational publishers face fines and even jail time if their materials break state laws. But the laws are often confusing and school officials are delaying book purchases. The Republican-led House and Senate in Alabama approved dueling congressional maps yesterday that would increase the percentage of Black voters in the state's second district. But not by enough, Democrats argued, to comply with the federal court order to create two districts in the state with at least close to a majority Black population. Some analysts have speculated that Republicans would rather have a court impose a plan with an additional Black majority district than have the creation of such a district on their own voting records. Well, two federal judges have handed legal losses to Donald Trump, one rejecting the former president's bid to move from state to federal court his upcoming criminal trial on hush money payments to former porn star Stormy Daniels and charges that he falsified business records in making those payments. And the other loss involved a court denying Trump's request for a retrial in the civil sexual assault case of E. Jean Carroll. Now, that judge, in issuing a denial 
of Trump's request for a new trial also clarified that the jury that found Trump liable for defamation and sexual abuse essentially determined that Trump raped E. Jean Carroll. A federal grand jury deciding whether to indict Trump over his efforts to overturn the 2020 election met today to hear testimony from an aide who was with the former president for much of the day on January 6, 2021. Now, William Russell, a former White House aide who now works for Trump's presidential campaign, was before the grand jury convened by special counsel Jack Smith to give testimony about what he knows about presumably what Donald Trump was doing and even possibly thinking on January 6th as insurrectionists stormed the Capitol. And in some really good news, NFL owners have approved the sale of the Washington Commanders to Josh Harris, a private equity investor. And Irvin Magic Johnson, one of the investors in Harris's group, tweeted after the announcement, this is truly the biggest achievement in my business career and a historic moment for the entire Black community. Talk about God's perfect timing. This was the right organization for me to be a part of, given its global appeal, history of winning, and the diverse fan base in the DMV. Congratulations to you, Magic Johnson. You are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time, and this is the hour where we dig a little deeper, where we go behind the headlines, and we bring you those stories that people are talking about. And in this hour today, we're talking about these shocking and alarming stats around Black maternal mortality rates. Black women continue uh, to die at alarming rates, doing something as natural as giving birth. Uh, so today I'm asking the question from a health equity expert, as well as a California state senator who has been leading on the issues of reparations, can policy recommendations, can reparations be the pathway forward to address health inequities, not just in the state of California, but nationwide. We are starting to see a task force, reparations task force, like the one that met in California for over uh, a year, make recommendations beyond cash payments for descendants of slaves. Many of these policy recommendations coming out of a task force like California, like San Francisco, are really honing in on different ways that policy can be used to effectuate systemic change, particularly in the area of healthcare. Uh, when we come forward, uh, California State Senator Steve Bradford joins us uh, to talk about what the California Task Force uh, had in mind when it focused on health inequities and making reparations a way to address those health inequities in the state. Uh, also, we're going to be joined in this hour by a doctor who uh, is also on a mission to address health inequities in our healthcare system. Uh, when we come forward, stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and in hour two, we are talking about the health disparities 
that continue to impact vulnerable communities and communities of color. Uh, recent data show that Black maternal mortality has spiked in the last two decades. And according to the CDC, Black women are three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women. And we're really at a point in this country where it is dangerous for Black women to give birth in America. Uh, been lots of talk about how we address the disparities in our healthcare system, particularly as it relates to Black women giving birth, but also so many of the other health disparities uh, that plague our community. And since we've also been in this national conversation about reparations, I want to ask uh, one of the experts who've been working on reparations, is looking at policy uh, a way to address some of these health inequities. Uh, joining me in this hour is California State Senator Steve Bradford. He is uh, the senator for California's 35th district. Welcome, Senator Bradford. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, I know that you've been a leader on the issue of reparations in the state of California and really a nationwide. You sat on that California reparations task force that has issued this 1000 page report uh, with over 105 recommendations. And oftentimes when people think about reparations, they focus on is there going to be any cash payment made to descendants of slave uh, slaves? You know, is there going to be land provided? But today I really want to talk about some of the policy recommendations uh, in the California report. Uh, particularly, I'm looking at Chapter 29 that has a bunch of policy recommendations focused on addressing health disparities. So let me ask you first, why was it important for the task force to include policy recommendations related to health inequities? Uh, I think, thank you first for having me on the show. And uh, the reason why we looked at it, because as you stated, we've seen the gross disparities as it relates to African-American uh, health uh, in this country, and especially women, as you said, the morbidity rate and the uh, child mortality rate is higher than any other group uh, in this country, and it's higher than even some third world countries. So that's really troubling. And as we delved into all the harms of slavery and the vestiges and the remnants of slavery, health was one of those things that were at the top of the list, along with criminal justice reform. So uh, this was a common sense measure. And as you stated, um, I want a level set when I've been telling folks from the beginning expecting cash payments might not be what this is all about because reparations was never about cash. As you stated, it was about land, but also providing uh, these services that have been deprived from African-Americans for so long. So health, as we know, uh, African-Americans are probably one of the most underinsured groups in this country. So being able to provide them with ongoing health care, similar to what we provide to our GI uh, veterans, um, is something that we want to model this after. So we know at this stage, recommendations have been made. It's a thousand page report, over 105 recommendations. I'm looking at some of the poly rec policy recommendations as it relates to health care, and it includes things like improve health insurance coverage, uh, evaluate the efficacy of health care laws, including recent enactments, address anti-Black discrimination in health care, mandate standardized data collection, uh, provide medical social workers and health care advocates. And the list goes on and on with policy recommendations. So tell us how we move from this report and these policy recommendations to actual laws 
that would provide for things like this, you know, more universal or more affordable or more accessible health insurance coverage uh, or laws that will address the anti-black discrimination in healthcare. I wish I had a simple answer to it. It's going to take a lot of uh, work amongst uh, our colleagues to understand that this is important and that uh, we need to focus on that. So it's first crafting the legislation that captures the essence of this report, but narrowly refine it where we can target those specific areas. Like you say, having culturally sensitive healthcare workers, uh, providing ongoing healthcare for uh, uh people of color, specifically, I should say, African-Americans. The real task is, like I say, crafting the legislation that captures that. And that's where the real work begins. And uh, working with our various committees in which the policy will fall under, like the health committee, and help craft that legislation. So we're early in the process, but through the Legislative Block Caucus, we're going to have a working group that's going to help put, so to speak, meat on the bones to help move forward and be you know, specific and intentional about those areas that need to be addressed as it relates to healthcare. So given that there are over a hundred recommendations, many of them policy recommendations in the California Reparations Task Force report, how will you prioritize? Like you mentioned healthcare, you talked about criminal justice reform. You know, obviously when we look at African-Americans, we are at the bottom of so many uh, you know, uh, of these metrics, whether it's healthcare or housing, uh, you know, economics, the wealth gap between black and whites, you know, so great 10 to one, uh, most reports uh, confirm. So how will the Black Caucus or the legislators in, in Sacramento, California, decide where to begin with these policy recommendations? Well, we're going to form a working group. Uh, amongst the legislative block caucus and we're all going to the 12 of us are going to take specific areas uh, uh, where we feel comfortable at uh, we have dr keila weber who's a OBGYN, so I'm pretty sure she's going to take the lead as it relates to those areas of health care. We're going to have folks looking at the criminal justice reform areas and uh, the justice system, so we're going to lean on those members uh, to glean their expertise in those specific areas. So, uh, but it's going to be a working group that we're going to form in the next couple of months once we return back to Sacramento and start delving in and, and uh, you know, and assigning those specific areas. So we haven't even done that yet, but that's our next step. When I look at some of these policy recommendations, Senator, uh, part of me says, well, don't we already have some laws on the books uh, in the state and, you know, at the federal level that addresses some of these issues. So, and despite having those laws on the books, we still see these gross disparities with respect to African-Americans. So how does the uh, working group, <clears throat> I know the working group hasn't been formed, but how does, how do, how do, how are you as a legislator thinking about how this legislation, specific legislation that comes out of these policy recommendations impacts Black folks, the Black community, in a way that existing legislation has not been able to? That's a great question, and I wish I had the answer. I mean, we have to be intentional about what we're going to uh, move forward and be specific. Yes, you, you're right. There are laws on the books that you know you know, capture all of these things that we're going to probably try to drill down and be a little bit more specific on. But it's really about 
uh, educating our colleagues, those non-African-American members of the legislature to understand that there are great disparities. Many still believe that you, you have not because you haven't asked or you haven't applied yourself, but really delving down and, and, and drilling down, I should say, we'll, we'll see that there are great uh, disparities on how laws are implemented that truly affect African-Americans in a very negative way. So shining a light on that which already exists, but also stressing a need of why we need these policies that we're going to recommend in order to move forward and have substantive change. Because a lot of what we have on the books, you know, yes, speaks to what we're talking about, but it's in a very high, high level. We want to be very specific and drill down and be very intentional about Here's the data that affects African-Americans like no other group. And this is why this is going to be needed. It's not going to be an easy task by no stretch of the imagination. So I don't want to mislead anybody. And as I've stated, this is probably going to be the most challenging piece of work I and my other 11 colleagues will do as an elected official in this state. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Obviously, this is hard work. Uh, just getting to this report, just getting the commission up and running, the task force up and running. And I wonder when this task force uh, was initiated, when the legislation was passed and signed by the governor, and particularly during the period when the task force was meeting, the country, the mood of the country was, was I will say, different. And experts will confirm uh, you know, after George Floyd's murder in March of 2020, the country was uh, in the mood to have conversations about systemic racism. It was in the mood to enact legislation, uh, you know, to spend money at the government level, at the nonprofit level, at the philanthropy level, at, even at the corporate level uh, to address some of these systemic issues. But we have seen a backlash. We've seen uh, a retreat from some of those tough conversations and from some of those commitments even that were made uh, after the summer of reckoning, I'll call it that. So how are you feeling about the climate that we find ourselves in, the, the intense partisan nature of our politics, the intense anti-Blackness that we experience every day in this country? How will that impact you and your colleagues' ability to move legislation forward that falls under the rubric of reparations, which we know already is so controversial? It's going to be a monumental task for sure. And you hit the nail on the head. The mood of this country has shifted tremendously. I can you know, uh, give an example. Uh, shortly after George Floyd was murdered, almost 80 assembly members and senators gathered on the west steps of the Capitol. And we took a knee for eight minutes and 39 seconds in honor of uh, George Floyd. But later on that year, we couldn't even get police reform legislation uh, voted on that year. So there has been a, a, a shift. And now, as I'm telling my colleagues, my non-African-American colleagues, now's the time for profiles and courage. And now just we'll find out who our true allies are. And uh, that's what's going to be the real test and telling point right now of who our true allies are, who are willing to embrace the need for this legislation. I think the report clearly speaks to all the harms that still exist that are directly connected to slavery and why this is important. But I was just uh, with the Silicon Valley leadership group uh, over the weekend, and they choose even spoke to the need for greater corporate participation 
and, and continuing to try to level the p- playing field when it comes to African-Americans and whether it's in the job market, providing those resources, community support programs and things of that nature. So we have seen a shift and that's going to be our biggest challenge because, um, you know, it, it, this has to be not just a moment, but a movement. And I don't know quite I'm not quite sure if it's the movement that we continue to need right now, because it's a lot of folks have felt and still state, oh, why is this necessary at this time? And, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about Florida and Texas and Alabama and these states that are controlled by Republican majorities in their state houses. And looking at some of the the oppressive laws that they have passed, you know, restricting abortion, uh, preventing the teaching of accurate black history. And then we think about states like California that has a majority Democratic legislature. And we tend to think everything that Democrats want will get done because it's just a bunch of Democrats and we're all on the same page and we're all progressive and we're all liberal uh, what's wrong with that uh, <laughs> assessment of a blue state like California? Uh, there's great danger in supermajorities, despite what people believe. And if I can quote Willie Brown, when he was Speaker of the House, he always said, give me 54, but never 55. There are now 61, I believe, Democrats in the Assembly and 32 in the Senate. And when you have that larger majority, you have members who now hide and say, oh, you don't need my vote. Go find somebody else to vote for. You have, you know, you you don't need me to get to 41. So it makes it harder and you have less to leverage with and negotiate with because they're like, you know, give me everything or I'm not going up on it. And it's just not enough resources to go around like that. So it really hinders you. And I, I often say California is liberal and and when it comes to and progressive when it comes to environment and you know climate change and all of those things but when you c- talk about the real social needs the uh racial uh equity and and uh inclusion we're still far behind and we're not as diverse as people think and i say the difference between california is that we have Covert racism versus what you see in the South is overt racism. So in many ways, the covert racism is far harder to deal with than the overt. So that's some of our challenges here. And even again, just because a person has a D behind their name doesn't necessarily believe that they're going to vote for what the majority want. I, in case in point was last year on the California state Senate floor. Uh, now, Congresswoman uh, Sidney Comlogger had a bill to eliminate uh, involuntary servitude out of off out of our constitution here in California, mm-hmm. we could not get 21 Democrats to vote for wow. that. Wow, wow, <laughs> and that's wow. in essence slavery. Yeah, that's yes. Uh, well, we are out of time. Thank you so much, uh, Senator Bradford, for taking time out of your busy schedule to enlighten us on the the Herculean task that. Uh, the Congressional Black Caucus has taken on and will continue to take on. We are so grateful for your service and your work and are looking forward to some of these policy recommendations, particularly around health inequities becoming law and hopefully having a significant impact on the health and well-being of Black folks in California and then being a model uh, for the rest of the country. So again, thank you for joining us. When we come forward, uh, we're going to talk some more about these health inequities and get some experts' uh, opinion on Outside of the legislature, what can we do to address health inequity? Stay with us, KBLA Talk 15.
We are back, and this is the second hour of Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. And in this hour, we are talking about health inequities and how they continue to be pervasive in vulnerable communities, particularly uh, communities of color, the Black community. And earlier, we were talking with California State Senator Steve Bradford about some of the policy recommendations in the California Task Force, uh, the Reparations Task Force report and how those policy recommendations might impact uh, the significant health inequities that we continue to see. Uh, and this is coinciding, this, this reparations task force, these policy recommendations around health inequities with uh, reports for reparations, or recommendations for recomm- uh, reparations coming out of places like San Francisco. Uh, they issued a reparations report a couple of months ago that again had as one of its policy recommendations for the city and county of San Francisco to address the health inequities in that city. Uh, so uh, we're also going to talk now with uh, Dr. Miranda Ward. She's an assistant professor at George Washington School of Medicine and Health Science Sciences, and she also is an expert on health inequities. Uh, beyond trying to use some of these uh, reparations recommendations and policy recommendations to address health inequities, what else can we do in this country? Must we do uh, in this country as we continue to get stats like the one around uh, black women and the black maternal mortality rate? Uh, so Dr. Ward, welcome to the show. Let's uh, just talk to the Senator. You know, he's going to be, or he, he and his colleagues are gonna be pursuing legislation but at your level, at, at the university level, and at the level of the work that you do, what else should we be doing as a country to address uh, that stark and shocking and very, very alarming health inequities that Black people face? Oh, so thank you so much for the invitation. And I definitely just want to expand what the senator mentioned when it comes to addressing structural racism, because that's literally what's at the root of what um, the health inequities that we see. And so, because if you think about it, you know, like health disparities don't exist in individual people, right? They exist, they're patterned across entire populations. And so there's no biological explanation. So our interventions shouldn't be biological. They very much should be structural, policy-based, research-based, practice-based. So if we think about the Black maternal mortality crisis that we're experiencing, and let me just say, first of all, we're experiencing an overall maternal health crisis, right? With, you know, the U.S. being, I mean, here we are in 2023, right? We're one of the most um, technologically advanced, medically advanced, high-income countries in the world, right? We have the highest rates of, you know, maternal mortality among all industrialized nations. And, um, you know, so that shouldn't be happening, you know, just in general, but, you know, especially in 2023, And so the thing is that, yes, we already, you know, people are probably already familiar with the fact that, you know, among all women, Black women in particular, yes, Hispanic women, and actually, I I feel like we don't talk enough about Native American women, because they actually actually have the highest increase in the number of uh, maternal deaths um, just in a short period of time. But no other, like no subgroups of women have the highest rates than than black women. And so if you think about, you know, white women having, and as you may, may know, we actually use rates just because we can't use whole numbers. We can't use percentages because, you know, the denominators, the number of, you know, women in each group is different. So in order to make them comparable, we do use rates. So if we think about the number of maternal deaths per live birth, you know, you go from 
26 deaths. That's what white women are experiencing per 100,000 live births. 28 deaths. That's what, you know, Hispanic women are um, facing. Again, we should have zero deaths, right? But we have 26, we have 28. Native American women, 46. And then we have Black women, 70. Right. So, again, the thing is that it's going to be uneven and different hotspots across the U.S. have higher rates, especially in the South. But again, no matter where you live, if you're black, you're more likely to actually have maternal, um, you know, basically have poor maternal outcomes just in general, but then also be at a greater risk for maternal mortality. And that's uncalled for. And so at the root of that is structural racism. So, A, um, the fact that black women even give birth less, you know, like, for instance, I want to say in the year 2021, black women actually were less likely to even give birth. So our, you know, our actual birth rate had gone down, but we still had higher rates of, you know, maternal death than any other woman. So like that begs the question, if we're less likely to give birth, why are we more likely to die? Right. Giving birth or shortly after. And I think that one of the first things that we need to do is we need to birth, we need to first make sure we have comparable data because right now the way we even measure maternal mortality is not universal, right? Some regions, mm -hmm. some states actually are measuring, okay, if a woman dies, and again, this is pregnancy-related deaths, not if you're pregnant and you get in a car accident or if you're pregnant and you die by homicide, that doesn't count. But if you're pregnant and you um, actually die um, in birth, in, like, you know, in labor, up to 45 days after some states actually use that as a cutoff point, they, you know, pull up the death certificates and they count that as maternal mortality. Other states like D.C., where I'm living, actually extended up to a year. So the fact that we are already not counting it in the same way lets us know that the data that we do have is woefully underestimated. And so that's the first problem, that we don't actually have reliable data, one. So that's why it's really important from a legislation perspective that every state has a maternal mortality review committee. It actually looks up these, you know, the death certificates and actually has some a consistent way of actually assessing what counts as maternal mom death. That's the first thing. But then from a structural racism perspective and like the reparation of legislation that they were talking about is really important because, A, we know it's very well documented is the fact that there's clinician bias. Right. That's nothing new. But because of the history of scientific racism, you know, this, this idea that black bodies are, you know, have been historically seen as animal like and immune to pain and more disease or risk prone definitely explains why throughout history our bodies were exploited. It was experimented on, abused in research, by research. And so U.S. clinicians actually have been traditionally falsely, be, let's be very clear, trained to think that black people actually um, have thicker skin or we have less nerve endings or, you know, basically don't believe our pain. They dismiss our pain. They write us off as drug seeking, right? So when you actually have black women who actually, you know, are, have established medical home going in to see their, you know, OB-GYN and actually sharing with, or even their, you know, primary care, um, you know, clinician after birth, they're telling them like, you know what, something's off. Like, I don't feel, you know, they're, they're sharing with them their symptoms and they're being, you know, turned away. And then literally they're, they're dying of these symptoms. And so, we, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we also have to think about, remember when I mentioned how there are higher rates in the South, you know, a lot of this has to do with access. So, yes, like in rural areas, there's, you know, they're like less likely to even have access to specialists like an OB-GYN, right? You might mm -hmm. even have to travel, you know, 30 miles just to get access to an OBGYN. But I'm not going to act like, you know, geographic access is just an issue in the, um, you know, in rural areas, because right in urban areas like in D.C. and other metro, um, you know, cities. 
you know, their access, geographical access to maternal care is an issue. So, for example, in D.C., there's eight wards and wards six, seven and eight, which is mainly where black people live in the city. Mm-hmm. If you're a black, you know, birthing person, right, there's nowhere for you to have your baby. Wow. <laughs> Literally, there's no wow. hospital in ward six. There's no hospital in Ward 7. There is a hospital in Ward 8, but that the maternity ward of that hospital got shut down, right? So mm-hmm. maternal health deserts are definitely real, right? And so that, you know, becomes an, um, um, a concern. And then, you know, speaking of access, access is not just geographical. Access is also financial, right? So we need to extend, going back to legislation, we do need to extend the length of Medicaid coverage because right now, you know, you get 60 days. And like I said, we actually, if all of us are uniformly measuring and saying like, okay, we want to see how women fare or, uh, you know, how birthing people fare up to a year after, you know, they deliver, we should have, you know, Medicaid coverage 12 months postpartum. And right now it's only 60 days. So if you, if you don't know how you're going to pay for it, right. I only get one right. or two days. I'm not going in. Right. Yeah. Same thing. Uh, I want to stop you right there because I also, I do want to talk about insurance coverage because that's one of the policy recommendations coming out of this California task force yep. is expanding access to insurance uh, and it begs the question about, again, how that can be done and how doing that will specifically address this issue of Black maternal mortality and so many other health inequities obviously w- would be addressed if folks had access to insurance, particularly uh, preventative coverage so that they can go to the doctor before there is a crisis. Uh, when we come forward right here on KBLA Talk 1580. In this segment, we are talking about health inequities and ways to address health inequities. We were asking Senator Steve Bradford, could some of the policy recommendations coming out of the California Reparations Task Force uh, be used to address some of these health inequities? And we're talking with Dr. Miranda Ward. She's assistant professor at George Washington School of Medicine and Health Sciences about other ways to address health inequities, not just around the spiking or the spike in the maternal mortality rate for Black women, but also some of the other health inequities. Because, uh, Professor Ward, it's not just Black women uh, dying during childbirth that's a, an issue for the Black community around health, but Black. Uh, there was a report out last week that Black men uh, are more likely to suffer from skin cancer in unusual places, like, you know, at the bottom of their feet. Uh, you know, there's always uh, studies out about the high incidence of high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, uh, and certain kinds of cancers amongst African-Americans. We know COVID disproportionately impacted the Black community. So when you think about it as an expert on health inequities, all of the ways in which these health inequities plague our community, uh, beyond policies, what else should we be doing as a community? So that's a great question. Um, I'm going to start with, so there's there's multiple things that we can do from an individual level to institutional level, and then yes, community and policy. So I'll, I'll start at each. So individually, each of us can establish a medical home, right? And, you know, have get regular screenings and actually advocate for, um, you know, when, when we actually feel symptoms, if you think about it, we're the experts on our bodies, right? So you know when something doesn't feel right, <laughs> you know if you weren't, if you haven't been sleeping, right? You know if um, you're experiencing pain or, you know, if you're experiencing any type of um, new sensation, 
you know, being having transparent conversations with your medical team is critically important. And so, you know, making sure that you have those regular checkups and again, be preventative, right? So that you don't find yourself having to, um, you know, have to manage chronic conditions. But in the event that you do, right? Because again, we think about the number one cause of death around the world, it's heart disease. So, you know, in the event that you do, you know, find yourself managing chronic conditions, it's really important that, you know, you have the kind of wraparound care that you need and you're seeing all the different um, specialists, you know, on, on your care team. So that's the first thing. Advocate for yourself. You know, um, if you, I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that the U.S. has a set of health goals. And other than eliminating health disparities, that's one of the nation's health goals, and it's been the case since 2000, but also it's, you know, to achieve health equity, meaning everyone has a fair opportunity to achieve, you know, their possible, uh, what's possible for their health, but it's also to attain health literacy. What is health literacy? Health literacy is not just being able to read and write. You can be able to read and write and not be able to understand where to get credible health information, right? And so if you don't know where to get credible health information, if you think about it, we're, you know, there's information overload, you know, we have <laughs> so much information at our fingertips. How do you how do you actually decipher what what source to rely on? And then once you get that information, how do you process, you know, what exactly it says and be able to apply it to, you know, and process that information, think about a cost benefit ratio of the risk to benefits and then apply it to your life. Right. So like health literacy is actually really um, an area that we want to attain because it's really hope there's really low health literacy levels across the U.S. So that's and, and let, me, let me stop you there. So when you think about health literacy, I think about all the programs that community based organizations do in communities around this country. You know, you go to a outdoor fair and there's a, a, a table set up or, you know, there are physicians that are out doing screening. Is that the way people uh, acquire this health literacy you're talking about, or how do you become literate, health literate? Great question. So there's many ways. So yes, understanding, you know what, how do I make sense of what, how to get credible information, right? Do I just scroll through my IG feed and I see, you know, um, a, a meme or a video and then like whatever the information is, I trust it, <laughs> right? So it's kind of like, well, how do you, you know, so really that's where camp campaigns, like you said, these kind of trusted um, kind of community anchors, right? So I feel like there's lots of uh, faith-based organizations and community groups Universities are actually partnering with like barbershops and nail salons to get information out so they know that, you know what, this is information that you can trust. Things that are wh whatever website dot gov, right? If it's a, if a government well, site, you can definitely check, you know. Um, you know, Dr. What I talk to so many people who say that getting access to their doctors uh, today is so difficult, that the waiting lists are so long, that when you call to get an appointment and that is what drives people to the internet. That's what drives people to start doing their own searches. And, you know, they start getting all this information about, you know, diagnosing themselves. Uh, I just saw something online that says a lot of youth are now diagnosing themselves with mental health conditions from mm -hmm. the internet. Right. And so people get anxious. If I can't get in to see my doctor for 30, 60, 90 days, and I don't have access to any of these trusted messengers, then the internet, the, the web becomes the way that I access information. What do you do in that situation if you don't, you know, if, if you're on one of these long waiting lists, which is becoming more and more common? Agreed. And so, and then that, that's like, that is one of the, you know, kind of challenges of just, 
ensuring that for those who are not able to access telehealth and telemedicine, because that's another kind of way to provide, you know, kind of more rapid care for, and so, you know, when people can't get into like see, um, you know, kind of medical teams and medical providers um, in real time, being able to like, you know, be able to talk to a nurse practitioner or things like that in the meantime, or, you know, just kind of get your questions posed, you know, on the patient portal and not necessarily having to go in um, or again, just scheduling an appointment to, you know, virtually. So like those are kind of some viable kind of methods that a range of different um, hospitals, clinics, federally qualified health centers have been attempting to use. But then, like I said, going to trusted community anchors like barbershops, like nail salons, like churches, like, you know, mosques, like any place, like schools, right? Where, okay, people are already there. People already trust, you know, the leaders there, the, you know, the, um, the community anchors there. So tapping them to be the key messengers. And so, yes, I, I realized that we live in a tech, you know, a digital age, <laughs> age of disinformation, A. Right. Because, you know, a lot of people are not believing in science anymore and thinking questioning science. And again, we should be critical purveyors of the world. We should pose questions, you know, so I'm not against, you know, posing questions, but just, you know, thinking about there's so much information. How do you wade through it and know, you know, okay, actually I can trust this. You're right. That's that's the ongoing challenge, which is why that's right. part of the nation's goal. <laughs> it's like, okay, we realize like, this is a challenge. We need to tackle this. And there hasn't been like a, a nationwide kind of campaign or policy or, you know, kind of effort to, to kind of get ahead of that. And so that's why you see kind of on the grounds level, um, you know, interventions and initiatives trying to do just that, you know, especially like youth based, uh, you know, like there's apps and, you know, online campaigns and things like that. I was actually just... I was a mentor for uh, um, ETR. They had uh, they were partnering with a group of HBCUs, and they basically had students actually come on as these digital messengers, and they gave them all of this background and training. And what's um, ETR? It's it's a it's a uh, it's called ETR Associates. It's basically an organization that focuses on research. Okay. And so what they did was they started to par- they gave money to start partnering with different HBCUs, and they um, were looking for mentors to work with the HBC students. So I signed up to be a mentor, and basically these students were to go online and create these online health related campaigns. But they got the training in public health, health right. disparities. Um, you know, health communication so that they can do just what we're talking about, ensuring that people are health literate. So they just got to decide their target audience and the things like that. So I feel like you see those kind of initiatives here and there, but it's not widespread nationwide campaigns, right? It's just kind of like, <laughs> you know, there's a pocket of funding here. So then they were able to, you know, kind of offer that, um, you know, that kind of that kind of effort. So I think that, you know, passing key legislation, like for example, back in 2020, there was a maternal health omnibus which was like a list of nine bills that got reintroduced this year, actually. And it, I appreciated that it, fo- it focused on the important role of the social determinants of health, right? So yes, while we're talking about access to healthcare, access to safe and quality food is equally important, right? So it's having access to safe housing, living in a safe community, having quality education, transportation, and jobs, right? So all the things that people need to live because if you think about it, the average person is doesn't spend their life in the clinic or the hospital. Like they're, you know, 80% of what's determining our health outcomes is everything out there. So we really should be, you know, thinking about these conditions, like the social and environmental factors that are literally weighing in on how long we live. Because we know, you know, our zip code determines our our um our life expectancy, how long we live. And so that's why yeah, we're, we're, we're running out of time, Professor. So much great information. I, I think one of the things that I found from your conversation that I hope resonates with everyone is 
health literacy and how you become literate is going to differ for different people in different communities around this country, but becoming literate about your health is so, so important. And that involves uh, knowing your family's history, your family's health history, uh, as well as what's going on with your own body. And I think the doctor put it best, you are the most knowledgeable about your body and your health. So you are your own best advocate when it comes to your health. Thank you so much for your insights. Thank you, Thank you for the work that you're doing on this very important issue. So, so important. Uh, we are out of time. You can follow me on all social media platforms at Ariva Martin. And the next